0: ED physicians are only about 80% accurate in their diagnosis of acute CHF. Why? Well, there's no single element of the past medical history presenting symptoms or physical exam findings that can reliably rule in or rule out acute CHF in the ED. Orthopnea, PND, weight gain are not especially helpful in making the diagnosis, and even the lauded S3 gallop, which most of us can't identify at the best of times in the ED, isn't really a slam dunk. Well, what about the x-ray, you might ask? Well, surely a chest x-ray can help us rule in or rule out CHF with good accuracy. Well, not so much. The classic signs of CHF are often absent on chest x-ray, and inter-observer agreement Whether you're an ED doc or a radiologist, on the diagnosis of CHF by X ray is enormous. Despite these shortcomings, when all of these elements are put together, ED physicians' clinical gestalt is actually not bad at diagnosing CHF. But maybe we could be better. Enter BNP. BNP is currently in use in many EDs across North America. But does it improve our diagnostic accuracy above and beyond our clinical gestalt? Does it help us distinguish between that COPDer who comes in and dyspneic, who might be in CHF, but it could also be COPD exacerbation, and we're not really sure? Well, in this Journal Jam podcast, we discuss the clinical utility of BNP in the workup of the dyspneic ED patient while covering most of the world's literature on the topic. We not only ask, does BNP add much beyond physician gestalt? But also, are there a specific subset of patients that BNP might be useful for? Should we abandon BNP as a dichotomous rule-in, rule-out variable and instead use it as a continuous variable? Or maybe use it like we use lactate and sepsis as a prognostic tool? Does using BNP affect patient-oriented outcomes, the thing that we really care about? Or has lung POCUS made BNP irrelevant? Finally, are prediction models that include BNP useful? I mean, what I really want to know at the end of the day is when, if ever, should I order up a BNP in the ED? I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And I'm Rory Spiegel. And this is the Journal Journal Jam Jam Podcast. Let's jump in with the multicenter prospective observational study that started it all from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2002, the one that showed a sensitivity as high as 97% for CHF. Justin, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the study and what we should take away from it?
1: Yeah, for sure, Anton. So we we should note there's there's a ton of observational data, but this study uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine by Mazel in 2002 was sort of the first big one in the emergency department. And it's a multi-center prospective observational cohort. They had over 1,500 patients who presented to the emergency department with a uh, chief complaint of acute dyspnea, and every single one of the patients had a BNP drawn. Now, we should note right off the top here, there's a couple different types of BNP tests that are used uh, these days. You can get BNP and you can get N-Terminal pro BNP as well. According to the best meta analysis out there, the two are interchangeable at this point. So we're just going to talk about BNP through, throughout the entire podcast, but we can refer to either one of them. So in this study, every single patient had a BNP drawn, and the treating emergency physician wrote down what they thought the probability of CHF was before that BNP test came back. And the final diagnosis they were looking at was just the diagnosis of CHF, which is a little bit tricky. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, but they used two different cardiologists looking at all sorts of data 30 days later, including echoes, uh, including clinical data, but they were blinded to the BNP. And it's probably worth pausing before we get to the results here and just talk a little bit about that because a lot of the data here is going to hinge on this, the gold standard of CHF.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point because the concept here is we're going to be comparing it to this gold standard that's very similar from trial to trial. And what it ends up being is these two cardiologists looking at the the entirety of the clinical data and deciding whether the patient had CHF or not. And, and this study kind of highlights the problems with that um, nicely because if you look – The cardiologist disagreed with the emergency physician's initial diagnosis about 14% of the time. And because we use the cardiologist as the gold standard, that meant the emergency physician was wrong. But they actually disagreed with each other 11% of the time. And so it does call into question the true relevance of this gold standard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So on the very first day, emergency physicians were only missed 14% of these diagnoses using that gold standard. And 30 days later, the cardiologists were still wrong 11% of the time. To me, that says the emergency docs were incredibly accurate on day one.
0: Wow. Well, that's good to know that ED docs are pretty much as good as cardiologists at diagnosing acute CHF with half the amount of data that they get once the patient's been admitted with their ECHOs and all their other tests. And we should be better at because we're really the ones who see them in the acute phase of their illness, right? 100%.
1: Throughout all these studies, there there tends to be a slant in the conclusions that eMERGE docs aren't very good at this. But even if we're missing 15 to 20%, you have to consider what the gold standard is. And I think physician judgment, emergency physician judgment is incredibly good in these studies. So to conclude our, our discussion here, keeping in mind that the gold standard is a little suspect here, the BNP numbers look not bad. Now, part of the problem is they use a bunch of different cutoffs here, but for a very, very low BNP level below 50, the sensitivity is great, 97%. Um, the specificity is okay at 62%. Now, they might try to get that specificity higher by having higher cutoff uh, values. And so if you use a a higher number, like 150, the specificity improves all the way to 83%. But your sensitivity is going to fall all the way down to an almost unusable 85%. So, So the numbers are not bad.
0: So the real question there then is how do they compare to physician judgment themselves? We already said that ED physician judgment is pretty good. So was the BNP any better than physician judgment? So
1: I think that is the absolute key question, uh, Anton. Whenever you're considering a diagnostic study, there's a number of different things that we can consider. Um, And one of my favorite papers on this is, is Fryback back in 1991 that we can link to. But he says when... You're thinking about a diagnostic study. You can think about it at six different levels. You can just think about how good the lab is at finding the the BNP level. So, that technical information that we never really think about. You can think about the sensitivity and specificity. But then, the higher level stuff, the stuff that really matters, is does it change physicians' diagnostic thinking? And then, even more important, does it change management plans? And even more important than that, does it change patient outcomes? And then you should also consider, what are the societal costs? What are the, the benefits? And so we spend a lot of time on the lower level stuff here, sensitivity and specificity. But we really do want to think is, how does this compare to physician judgment? Does it improve our, our judgment? And you can. there are a couple other observational studies that give us a little bit of information on this. Uh, there's a study by McCulloch in 2002 that says, you know, looking just at the physician judgment, you get this area under the curve number of 088 The BNP's area under the curve is 0.90, so really basically the same as physician judgment. Maybe if they're combined, they get marginally better, but I don't think it's clinically different, a way that we're going to see. Another study by Genuzzi in 2005 did say that that BNP was probably marginally better than physician judgment, but again, the, the numbers are so small that it might be statistically significant, but I'm not sure that it's clinically significant. I think the analogy that I like to use when I'm thinking about this is: Have you ever guys ever seen one of those weather sticks? You know, we have a, a rock on the end of a stick, and you stick it outside your your house. And if it casts a shadow, it's sunny outside. And if it's wet, it's rainy outside. I don't that test is actually really good. It's a fantastic test. It'll tell you whether it's rainy or whether it's sunny. But I don't need that test because I'm already looking outside and I know whether it's rainy or sunny.
2: Right, exactly. So, I mean, to put this in like just a a clinical term, when the patient gets wheeled in by the EMS and they're dead upright on the stretcher, they have rails up to their apices, their legs are swollen, they're coughing up pink, frothy sputum, I don't need a test to tell me that they're in CHF. Um, Likewise, when the patient comes in and they're wheezing and they have a history of asthma and they have a prolonged expiratory phase, again, I don't need a test to tell me they don't have CHF, but there's a whole bunch of patients in the middle that we're not exactly sure, and that's the kind of patient that we want some form of a test to help us make a clinical decision. And it's in that cohort of patients that we want to know if whether the BNP is actually helpful.
1: So yeah, that's absolutely true. And when you just come back to the study that we've been talking about, they used cutoffs of 20 and 80%, meaning that if the physician thought it was 80% likely or more of CHF, that was rule in. And if it was less than 20%, that was rule out. Those numbers really don't make sense to me. If I tell you that I think that I'm 80% sure that a patient has CHF, that's not really ruling in. If I had been doing this study, I would have used cutoffs that were much higher, maybe 95% for ruling in and 5% for
2: ruling out. So this kind of transitioned perfectly into the McCullough analysis of the Mazel study where they actually looked at the risk stratification by the emergency physicians and looked at when they thought they were sure, so 95% sure that it was CHF or they were 95% sure that it wasn't CHF and, and looked at how they performed and compared to the BNP in those kind of categories. And so when the emergency physician was sure it wasn't CHF, so they said there was a fa- less than a 5% chance that this patient had CHF, they were incredibly accurate, 92% accurate. Similarly, when the physician was sure the diagnosis was CHF or 95% sure, they were correct 95% of the time. And it's only in that intermediate group the, between the, the, the patients where the emergency physician is sure that we hope that the BNP will help out. And in this cohort, the BNP didn't really perform that accurately.
1: And I might even phrase it another way, uh, Rory. So if you look at the really low risk patients, you said the physician was 92% accurate. And in that group of patients, the BNP was only 84% accurate. So physicians did better than BNP. And in the really high group, physicians were 95% accurate. BNP was only 92% accurate. So when you go, and then when you go into that in between group, the ones we really need help uh, on, yeah, BNP was a little bit better than us, maybe, but it was only 74% accurate. That, that's just not usable.
2: Right. So when we're sure we perform better than the BNP and when we're unsure the BNP is unhelpful. So what this study nicely illustrates is the concept of spectrum bias. The BNP as we said performs admirably in patients who are clinically obvious. But these are the patients that offer no diagnostic difficulty to us. We essentially do not require diagnostic assistance in these kind of patients. The patients in which we want the PNDB to help us are the ones that are clinically subtle, the ones that the emergency physician is unclear what the cause of dyspnea is. And it's in these patients that the BNP performs terribly.
3: Here comes the EBM bomb. Hi, it's Anton Nicklin again with another EBM bomb. Today, we're going to be covering spectrum bias. Spectrum bias, or case mix bias, is the inherent variability when performing a diagnostic test in different clinical scenarios. Tests, unfortunately, don't perform the same throughout the whole spectrum of a disease or across all populations. A test accuracy really depends on the disease prevalence and severity within the studied cohort. If you have a discrepancy between the study population and your patient, the test is going to be biased and inaccurate. Testing a group of patients that are unlikely to have the disease, well, that's going to falsely inflate the sensitivity. If you test a population that obviously has the disease well, that's going to bump up the specificity. If we take UTIs, for example, a urinalysis will look a lot more sensitive if you only test young, healthy males. On the other hand, testing women coming in for their typical UTI pain is going to make a test look much more specific. Ultimately, when evaluating a study, it's important to contextualize the population. Studies done on inpatients may not apply to your ED population. It's always vital to keep that in mind when ordering a test or evaluating a study. And that's been your one-minute EBM bomb.
0: So there's all these problems with the early studies in terms of lack of a clear gold standard, spectrum bias, et cetera. And up till now, we've been talking about how BNP can help your diagnostic accuracy. But let's take it one step further. What I really want to know is, does drawing a BNP in the ED help us in our treatment of dysmute patients so that their outcomes are improved significantly? In other words, does BNP affect patient-oriented outcomes?
1: Yeah, so Anton, this is that's a great question. And whenever you're looking at a new diagnostic test, what I care about way more than sensitivity or specificity is exactly that. Is this going to help my patient? And in order to answer that question, you can't just do an observational trial. You really need a randomized controlled trial. You need to give some physicians the test and some physicians can't, don't have the test and you have to see whether the physicians with the test do better. And luckily, Unlike most diagnostic tests, for BNP, there are some randomized controlled trials to help guide our, our management. So let's just quickly go through, um, in the order of dates, the trials that we have. So I'll start in the New England Journal of Medicine. In 2004, there's a study by Mueller. And this is a single-center, industry-sponsored, prospective, randomized control trial. Uh, there was 452 patients in, in this trial, all presenting with acute non-traumatic dyspnea. And every p- patient got their own, you know, usual ED workup. But some of them were randomized to have BNP available, whereas the other control group did not have BNP available. Uh, They use sort of a classic BNP cutoffs here. So the physicians were told if the BNP level was below 100, CHF is unlikely. If it's over 500, then CHF is the most likely diagnosis. And in this first uh, trial, the numbers aren't that bad for BNP. There were fewer fewer admissions to hospital in the BNP group, uh, 75 versus 80%. Fewer patients were admitted to the ICU, 15 versus 24%. And uh, the hospital length of the stay was actually shorter in the BNP group as well, eight versus eleven days. Uh, and costs were a little bit lower as well. I think that's entirely driven by three less days being spent in the in the hospital. Now. I'll note that those are pretty long outcomes. Spending eight days in the hospital or admitting 80% of your patients are, are these are, this is a pretty high risk uh, cohort. And seeing as this is a single center, one of the things you have to be careful about is those numbers might be incredibly different if your patients are only staying in hospital for three or four days as compared to 11 days at, at baseline. The other thing that I, I really stands out to me about those outcomes is they're all sort of subjective. And the physicians here aren't blinded, they can't be blinded. They know they have BNP. And your, uh, your willingness to send somebody home might be driven by how comfortable you are with the diagnosis. And you might be falsely reassured by the lab number in, in front of you. Uh, and so that might result in more people being sent home. But in terms of the objective outcomes that they measured in this study, mortality and readmission, there was no change at all.
2: Not only that, but I think it's important to consider to consider whether some selection bias might have been at play. The final diagnosis of COPD was interestingly made more commonly in the BNP group, 23% versus 11%. One would expect that the final diagnosis to be pretty much similar if proper randomization had occurred. On the other hand, that discrepancy may represent incorporation bias because of incomplete blinding. Not only that, but I think it's important to consider whether some selection bias might have been in play. The final diagnosis of COPD was made more commonly in the BNP group, 23% versus 11% in the control group, when we would expect this final diagnosis to be pretty much similar between the two groups if proper randomization had occurred. And so... This discrepancy may represent some incorporation bias because of incomplete blinding, where the results of the BNP cause the final diagnosis rather than just predict it. So, the next of these studies is MO et al., which was published in Circulation in 2007. And again, this was an industry-sponsored trial, and now it's a multi-center trial. It was a partially blinded RCT that looked at 500 adults presenting to one of seven Canadian EDs with dyspnea, suspected to be of cardiac origin. And the BNP again, was collected on all these patients, and CHF was considered ruled out if the BNP level was under 300 and ruled in with a level greater than 450 for patients under 50 year old and for patients over 50 year old, a level greater than 900. So you can already see things are getting far more complicated. The ED physician was also asked to estimate the likelihood of CHF before enrollment. And the final diagnosis again was made by two cardiologists who had access to all the data except the BNP levels at 60 days. And so the results, median length of stay was slightly less in the BNP group, 5.6 versus 6.3 hours, which I can sure most of us agree is probably not clinically important. And readmissions were less in the BNP group, 13% versus 20%, though that was not statistically significant. The total medical cost was also reduced in the BNP group and $5,180 versus a little more than $6,000. And again, there was no statistically significant difference in mortality. And in this case, there was no difference in initial hospitalization, hospital length of say, or ICU emissions. So... There was a marginal improvement in accuracy with an area under the curve of 0.83 versus 0.9 with the addition of BMP over a physicians' result. Although BMP alone was really not any better than clinical judgment.
1: So what I'm hearing, Rory, is that again, there's, there's a few positive outcomes here, but. Some of them are different. So, the initial trial said that hospital length of stay was better, but now it's not. And the initial study said the admission rate was better, and this one says it's not, um, which, when you're testing a lot of different outcomes, it makes me wonder about some randomness in, in this data. We're not seeing consistent outcomes being better in both of these two trials.
2: You know, you take a, a small sample size and you do a lot of measure a lot of continuous variables where it's very easy to get statistical significance, where you're questionable actual clinical significance, it's not surprising that a few of these results would be statistically significant.
0: So, so far in the RCTs, we see no real change in objective outcomes using BNP. And in terms of hospital length of stay, the studies really are quite mixed. Justin, do the rest of the RCTs help us clarify any change in outcomes or hospital length of stay with BNP? So,
1: I think those are probably the two most positive RCTs that that we'll see, Anton. Let's just run through the rest of them. So, the next one we have is Rutten. Uh, it's in the American Heart Journal in 2008. This is another RCT at a single center this time, uh, 477 patients presenting with acute dyspnea. This time… Because of the setting, it's a little bit different than what we're used to in North America. So the initial evaluation was only done by an emergency medicine resident about a quarter of the time. Most of the time, these patients were being worked up by residents in internal medicine or cardiology or pulmonology, uh, which would be a little bit different than what we're used to. Uh, the, The other problem with this trial is they don't say anything about blinding in this trial. Uh, and it's also not clear how the final diagnosis was made in this trial. I think it's just whatever the final diagnosis was written on the on the chart. Uh, but otherwise, again, patients were randomized to either have the BNP level available or to not have it available. So in this study, there was a shorter length of hospital stay again, two versus four days, and that was statistically significant, but there were no other statistical differences. So the costs were the same between the two groups. There was the same uh, admission rate. There was the same length of ED stay, uh, and there was no change in mortality or readmission. Mm
2: So the next RCT we have here is Schneider et al. and published in Annals of Internal Medicine in 2009. And again, this was an RCT out of two Australian emergency departments and included 612 patients over 40 years old presenting with severe dyspnea. And all patients, again, had a BNP-drawn but only in the intervention group were the emergency physicians allowed to see the results of the BNP. And the final diagnosis of CHF was made in 45% of the patients, and 85% were admitted to the hospital. So again, a sick group of patients. The physicians were advised that a BNP level under 100 made the diagnosis of heart failure fairly unlikely, whereas a BNP level over 500 made heart failure likely. The final diagnosis again, was based on two clinicians, at least one cardiologist with all the clinical data except the BNP. And again, they had a moderate agreement with only a kappa score of 0.79. And so, in this study, there was no difference between the groups in any outcomes. Emission rates were the same, length of stays were the same, there was no changes in therapies that were used in each group, and mortality and re were identical between the two groups.
1: Yeah, so a completely negative study, which sounds very much like our next study, which is by Singer et al. in Circulation uh, Heart Failure in 2009. And this is another industry-sponsored trial, multi-centered. It's a non-blinded, randomized and controlled trial with 385 adult patients presenting to the emergency department with signs or symptoms of acute CHF. They all sound fairly similar. This one was a little bit funny in that they excluded you right off the bat if you had a BNP less than 100, uh, which probably isn't ideal. You probably shouldn't be using the test that you're studying as one of the exclusion criteria in in a trial. It's hard to extrapolate that data later. But anyway, sick group of patients, 88% of patients were admitted to hospital. Uh, This was not just a single BNP test. So in the intervention group, you had a BNP measured at baseline, and then again at three, six, nine, and 12 hours, and then daily until you were discharged from the hospital. The control group was supposed to have no BNP testing, but actually they let the physicians order a BNP uh, if they wanted to at their own discretion, uh, which again is probably not perfect. Uh, and the primary outcome they were looking at here was the hospital length of stay. And once again, this trial shows no differences uh, at all between the two groups. Admission rates were exactly the same. Hospital length of stay was the same. Mortality was the same. Return visits were the same. The use of CHF medications were the same. It was all the same. Now, as I mentioned, going through, there are some problems with the study. I was not blinded. And the big problem here is that about half the patients in the control group, they did have a, a a BNP drawn. Uh, it, they didn't have the multiple BNPs drawn, but they did at least have one BNP drawn. So I, I'm not that surprised there's no difference between the groups, but it's this, another negative trial.
2: And so the last of our randomized trials is Myzel And it, it possibly has the best name ever called BNP forever with a four. Um, and it was published in uh, acute cardiovascular care in 2012. And another prospective trial looking at two centers and they took a convenient sample of 470 patients presenting to the emergency department during daytime hours with the complaint of dyspnea. All the patients had a BNP drawn, but the physicians were blinded in the control group. Before the BNP results were reported, Again, the physicians were asked to make a diagnosis of either heart failure or not heart failure. The interesting part about this paper is there was no primary outcome that was explicitly stated, um, so that always makes you question their results. The gold standard also was not explicitly stated, but it sounds like they just used the discharge diagnosis as their gold standard. And again, there was no difference in the rate of hospital admission, no difference in hospital length of stay. More patients left the hospital with the diagnosis of heart failure in the BNP group than in the control group. But without a clear gold standard, it's impossible to know what that really means. And no change in two-year mortality. Mm-hmm.
1: So maybe we should just do a very rapid uh, summary of the randomized control trials here. Uh, initially, it, it started off sounding maybe not that bad, right? We had a couple of trials that said there was a decrease in hospital length of stay, but then four of the six said that there was no change. Uh, and there was a couple of studies that say there was decreased cost, but then all the rest of them said no, no decrease in cost. But, you know, those were pretty subjective outcomes. So you can imagine unblinded physicians having their opinions swayed by the BNP numbers. And in terms of all the objective outcomes here, in terms of mortality, in terms of readmission, no single trial showed a change here.
0: So the bottom line there is that there's really no patient-oriented outcomes that are improved with BNP. And in terms of hospital length of stay and costs, the data really aren't convincing for any benefit. The other thing that I always wonder about was why should we bother with BNP if we have lung POCUS? I mean, my understanding is that lung POCUS has much better positive and negative likelihood ratios for the diagnosis of acute CHF than BNP does. So if we have a better test like lung POCUS, why even bother with BNP in the first place?
2: Right. And, and so this is a great question, Anton. And, and essentially, prior to the point where we all had pocus in, in all our emergency departments, the BNP was at best a mediocre test. Um But we didn't have another option. And one could argue that a a bad test doesn't make up for no test. But nowadays, with ultrasound being so prevalent in emergency departments, the question is, why bother at all? And uh, there was a very nice study published in CHEST in 2015 by Pavetti et al. And these authors enrolled a little over 1,000 patients presenting to the emergency department with acute dyspnea. Um, And it's actually, in design, very similar to the early observational trials that we use, where the emergency physicians were asked to make a clinical judgment on whether the cause of the patient's dyspnea was CHF or not based off their workup. And a BNP was also drawn. And after the workup, uh, a standardized point-of-care ultrasound examination was performed on these patients. And of the 1,000 patients, about 46% were given the final final diagnosis of acute decompensated heart failure. And the agreement between the two physicians, which were marked as the gold standard, was actually pretty good in this case, and it was only 3.5%. The treating physician's ability to clinically differentiate cardiac from non from a non cardiac cause of presenting dyspnea was actually exceptionally good. The physicians demonstrated a sensitivity and specificity of eighty five point three percent and ninety percent, respectively. And in fact, the the POCUS by itself only performed slightly numerically better at sensitivity of 90% and a specificity of 93%. And, you know, this doesn't really clinically differ that much from the treating physician. And although each one performed fairly well in isolation, when you combine them, it was quite incredible. The sensitivity and specificity of the physician judgment in addition to the lung ultrasound was 97% sensitive and 97.4% specific.
0: Well, wow, Those are pretty impressive numbers.
2: More importantly for the purpose of this discussion was the performance of the BNP. Of the 1,000 patients, not all of them had a BNP drawn in the study. It ended up being about half at 486. But in this subset of patients, its ability to differentiate cardiac dyspnea from non-cardiac dyspnea was worse than unassisted judgment. The sensitivity was only 85% and specificity was only 67%.
1: Yeah, so Roy, I think those numbers are very uh, telling. They go very well. The numbers that I pulled were from a systematic review and meta-analysis by Martindale in 2016. and sixteen, and. Lumping together a lot of these observational uh, trials, they say, overall, BNP has a positive likelihood ratio of 2.2 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.11. And looking at just B lines, nothing else on ultrasound, I think you could probably get better than this, they see positive likelihood ratios of 7.4 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.16. So just on the face value, numbers alone, POCUS does look uh, better than BNP. I would caution, though, that just like we really want to see randomized control trials of BNP, I'd love to see some randomized control trials to see that POCUS is really doing better for patients. Because I know I think it's great. I, I can tell a lot of stuff about my uh, dyspneic patients by looking at their lungs and their heart, but I know I find a lot of weird things. I think that I found you know some septal defects. I'm finding a bunch of things that I'm really not trained to look at, and when you add all that in together. I wonder whether I'm sometimes chasing my tail, and I wonder about the overall se- specificity when I start looking non at hearts. So I'm not 100% sure how this is going to translate to patient oriented outcomes, but Clearly, if you were going to choose between uh, BNP and POCUS based on these numbers, POCUS is better. And we have to remember, all the randomized controlled trials compared BNP to physician judgment without POCUS. These were all done before the era of POCUS. So I imagine if you compared BNP to the new physician judgment, physician judgment plus POCUS, uh, BNP would look even worse. I wasn't a big POCUS fan until I learned cardiac and and lung because it makes the biggest difference in these patients, I think. But how often do I end up doing a a CT or ordering a formal
2: echo that I may not have done five years ago? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Justin. And there actually is a randomized trial by Larson et al. Um, published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine in 2014 where uh, patients presenting to the emergency department with dyspnea were randomized to the workup by the emergency physician or the workup by the emergency physician plus a point of care ultrasound evaluation done by a single eager POCUS enthusiast. And what they found was, yes, the patients in the group randomized to receive the ultrasound uh, evaluation had their diagnosis made earlier and more correctly, but they actually found they also received far more downstream testing, which is exactly getting to your point. So I think, yes, this is something we do have to test more and, and more randomized trials need to be done because we have to understand what our threshold is to actually use ultrasonography to answer these questions. I think the way I use it now is in a patient where I have a question that I need to answer. So rather than applying it to everyone's chest who comes in with dyspnea, but in that group of patients where I'm not sure what the cause of their dyspnea is, just in the group where we said we'd like the BNP to help us, but it doesn't. It's that subset of patients that I put the ultrasound on to see if I can differentiate this from a a non-cardiac cause of their shortness of breath.
0: Yeah, me too. I mean, anecdotally, in exactly those patients you're talking about, the ones who come in dyspneic and they're not exactly fitting into CHF nor COPD, not really pneumonia or a PE, a two-second look with POCUS has helped me pick up many pericardial effusions that I for sure would have missed otherwise. So far, we've been talking about whether or not BNP added to physician gestalt improves diagnostic accuracy, right? But what if BNP was used as part of a prediction tool? Uh, Brian Steinhardt, who's been a guest expert on EM cases in the past, published a prediction tool in 2009 using BNP. In your opinion, does that tool have any promise? So... The
2: Steinerd all paper was a retrospective look at two previous cohorts, which was the two of the ones we looked at earlier: the Improved CHF trial and the Pride trial. And the authors used the initial cohort, the Improved CHF cohort, to derive their decision aid, and then performed a bootstrap analysis of the Pride cohort in an attempt to validate it. Um, and you know, this brings up some methodological issues, some of which are the same ones we discussed about earlier. That were incorporated into the primary studies, including the gold standard and changing their cutoff and so forth. But more importantly than this, their results may be a little misleading. They say, so this is a quote, they say, when applied to the external data, which they mean the PRIDE cohort, the use of an adjunctive final diagnosis as the gold standard, the model appropriately reclassified 44% of the patients by intermittent clinical probability to either low or high probability. And so what they're saying here is after they built their decision aid and then applied it to their second cohort was their PRIDE cohort in, in an attempt to validate it, in the patients who had this intermittent diagnosis or, or, or a clinical assault where the emergency physician wasn't sure whether they had CHF or not, their decision rule appropriately shifted patients either to low or high probability accurately. So, so they're essentially saying that their decision rule helped the emergency physician identify which patients had CHF, and that's exactly what we would want. And this sounds great at all, but it was actually only helpful in less than 50% of the patients in this group, which is a pretty small minority of the total population. So maybe a slim few patients, this decision, Jade, might be helpful in. And you know, given the fact that this was a retrospective study that was then validated using bootstrap techniques, you would have to validate this in a prospective study before you could actually say with any clinical certainty, this was actually helpful. And more importantly, like we said before, we now have ultrasound where we can just put the probe on the patient's chest and get our answer immediately.
1: Yeah, I think maybe the most important thing here is that I'm just not sure about the exact number. So of those patients that they shifted, there were false positives and false negatives. Uh, And what were they? Did we classify a patient who actually had a uh, PE as having CHF? Is that one of the false positives? That could be a a big problem. I don't think we have enough clinical data here to be uh, sure of, of the rule. Could this work in the future? Maybe.
0: So after the 2009 Steinhardt study that we've been talking about, there was a prospective validation RCT in 2017 called the GASP-AIR decision tool study, which looked at intermediate probability patients, those that the physician thought had between a 20 and 80% pretest probability of acute heart failure based on their history, physical, and chest X-ray, And they used a model that incorporated BNP as a continuous variable. Now, while the standalone model looked promising to improve diagnostic accuracy, redirecting almost half of the patients to rule in or rule out CHF, when put to the test in the ED with physicians actually using it on shift, the GASP-AIR decision tool did not show improved accuracy or patient outcomes. We'll have a separate short podcast with Dr. Steinhardt, the lead author of The Gas Bear Decision Tool, where he'll explain some of the challenges of this kind of research and give a BNP researcher's perspective on the value of BNP. What about BNP for inpatient use? I've heard the argument that it helps the inpatient service in terms of prognostication as well as a guide to management. Is this true?
2: So I mean, we've all heard that as a, a reason for us to help our inpatient colleagues. Um, I, I the, the first few randomized control control trials we looked at, I think almost disproved that, showing that it doesn't really help with hospital length of stay or admissions or so forth. Um, but there was a recent study kind of disproving it more, and this is by Stein and et al. It was published in circulation of this year. And, and it's a slightly complex methodology, which I'll, I'll try to explain as simply as possible. The authors randomized patients admitted to the hospital with acute exacerbations of heart failure. So these patients had heart failure already. And they basically took them through their stabilization phase. And the decision to discharge the patients was guided by the BNP or by physician gestalt. And so the patients were enrolled after admission but did not undergo randomization until they had sustained clinical stability. And this was defined as they had reached their target weight or their stable serum levels of creatinine, or their symptoms improved, essentially. And all patients at that point underwent randomization. At admission, the patients had a BNP level drawn, and a second level was drawn at this point of clinical stability. The clinicians were blinded to this value, and only after randomization were these BNP levels made available to the physicians where the patients were randomized to the BNP group. So... For patients with a 30% reduction in admission B&P at the point of clinical stability, discharge is recommended. Patients who did not achieve 30% reduction entered a predefined algorithm consisting of several treatment steps to drop their B&P under this 30% reduction. In the conventional arm, discharge and follow-up were determined by the treating physicians. And so they enrolled 411 patients, and the blinded BNP levels at admission and following randomization were similar between the two groups. 63% and 64% achieved this desired 30% reduction in BNP levels. Not surprisingly, once the physicians in the BNP group were made aware of the BNP levels and given a protocol to reduce these levels, they were far more effective at achieving this desired 30% reduction. 80% of the patients in the BNP arm had a reduction in BNP versus only 64% in the control group. But, you know, that is really just a surrogate outcome. And what we really care about, did this actually help the patients in any way? So the interesting thing we see is there was no difference in the number of days from emission to randomization in the two groups. Both had five guys, nor there was there from randomization to discharge, which is about three days in both groups. All-cause mortality and re-emissions within 180 days was 36% in each group. So essentially identical. And likewise, all-cause mortality was also identical. What was interesting is patients in the BNP arm who failed to attain the 30% reduction had a significant longer duration than the ones in the control group. So, all BNP essentially seemed to accomplish was keep patients in the hospital longer without any positive benefits for doing so.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I looked around, I tried to find some papers uh, on inpatient management as well, and there's a bunch of them. And I haven't done the same deep dive as on the emergency department uh, papers, but I think there's two major points to make. One is exactly what we said about the initial RCTs. There's a difference between subjective and objective outcomes. Because because you have to remember, these aren't blinded trials. The physicians know if they have BNP in front of them or not. And so a change in something like length of stay talks a lot about physician psychology more than actual patient benefit. I think it wouldn't surprise me if physicians are more comfortable sending patients home when a lab test tells them to do it rather than just trusting their own physician judgment. Uh, so there were a few studies that did show shorter length of stays. There were a bunch of studies that showed no difference in, in length of stays, but the key thing that uh, stayed consistent across all the studies were the objective outcomes. No study cha- showed a change in an objective patient-oriented outcome, things like readmission, things like mortality. So maybe they help our inpatient colleagues be comfortable sending patients home, although that's not a consistent finding, but they don't change really important outcomes. I think the other main takeaway that I have for this is, let's assume, say that it does help shorten a hospital length of stay. Does that mean that we should be doing it in the emergency department? And I think the thing that really drives my thinking there is something we didn't talk a lot about in our early discussion, and that's the specificity of this test. So, When you look back at the systematic review and meta-analysis, the specificity of BNP is between 40 and 50%. And the problem is, if we just start sending this on all our dyspneic patients in the emergency department, thinking that our colleagues are going to want it on admitted patients later, with a specificity that low, we are going to get a lot of false positives. We're going to end up ordering a lot more downstream testing. Uh, And there have been a number of studies in BNP that have showed more downstream testing in the groups that had BNP done. Uh, So even if it was helping our inpatient colleagues, which I, I don't believe that it is, I would leave the testing to them, because I worry about our much larger emergency department population. Uh, If you start using this as a screening test, you can have a lot more consequences in terms of the added testing. That low specificity really hurts us in a larger population in the emergency department.
0: Yeah, you know, Justin, you know, at the end of every evidence-based medicine session, people always want to know what the bottom line is. And based on the literature we have for BNP, how sure can you be that we have a bottom line to tell EM cases listeners? So,
1: Anton, anytime that you're looking at an evidence-based medicine question, the, the biggest Question that I have is what is the quality of the studies that that I'm looking at, and I've learned a lot from Dr. Andrew Worster, and he's taught me that the answer to everything in evidence based medicine is always it all depends. And so our our bottom line here, how sure we can be, is going to depend a lot on some of the a, a lot on some of the biases and weaknesses of these studies on how sure we can be. So i will just uh, quickly go through a few of the things that we already talked about. So one of the biggest things for me looking at this uh, this tr- one of the biggest things for me looking at these trials is just the lack of a gold standard for CHF. We rely on a cardiologist's opinion, uh, but cardiologists disagree with each other all the time. And as we said at the top, you know, if you look at the emergency physician judgment on day one, it's almost as good as cardiologists one to two months uh, later. So all of our uh, studies here are going to be a little bit on shaky ground because there is not a single gold standard.
2: I think the next concept is spectrum bias, and we see that the BNP is, is extraordinarily um, fragile and extraordinarily vulnerable to spectrum bias, and, and, and this is the sense that in the patients that are clinically obvious, the BNP performed quite well, but in the patients that were not clinically obvious and were subtle and, and created a, a diagnostic dilemma for the emergency physician, are the patients that the BNP performed terribly in.
1: Another methodological issue is just the different cutoffs that were used. And that's that's what the practical issue, if you were trying to use this in practice right now, what cutoff would you use? And, and I don't know. But there's also a methodologic issue that a lot of these studies Gathered the data and then retrospectively decided what the best cutoff would be. And any time that you're retrospectively fitting numbers to your data, it's going to look better. You're fitting the numbers to your your uh, data, and so I don't think I think the numbers that we see here are probably better than what you would see in
2: the real world. And so the next concept is the the poor specificity the BNP has when we're using it as a screening test. So in order to get an acceptable sensitivity, we have to drop our level so low that the specificity becomes quite poor. And that has a number of problems. One, these studies were looking at a population that... A large amount of them actually had CHF or the disease in question, and so you don't see the true vulnerabilities or true dangers of a low specificity test. If we were to use this as a screening test in all shortness of breath patients presenting to the emergency department, with a specificity that low, it was sure to increase testing.
1: Another issue, especially in the randomized controlled trials, is a lack of blinding. And we talked about this a lot in terms of the subjective outcomes. When clinicians know the tests that they're using, that could impact their decisions. And and so that lack of blinding may explain the results we're seeing rather than BNP explaining the results we're seeing. A a lack of blinding could also explain differences in diagnosis at the end of the trial uh, in that BNP ends up causing the diagnosis of CHF rather than predicting it from the beginning.
2: Right. And and I think probably the most important thing here is the concept that when you have clinical uncertainty, you want to use a test that gives you the answer accurately. And in this case, BNP is only marginally helpful, but we have a far better test now, and that's POCUS.
1: So bottom line, Rory, is it sounds like there are a number of methodological is- issues here In the end, I'd be a lot more concerned and spend a lot more time talking about these methods if the trials had shown that BNP was fantastic. But when the trials show that BNP doesn't help, and there's a bunch of methodological issues, should probably bias these trials in favor of BNP. I think that makes me a lot more comfortable in my conclusion that BNP is not going to be helpful for us.
2: Right, exactly. These were the optimal performance of BNP, given all the methodological issues. And even then, it was mediocre at best.
0: (laughs) I think we're ready now to talk about our kind of bottom lines and how this journal gem will change our practices. So my bottom line, taking all the literature together, is that because the use of BNP has never really been shown definitively to improve diagnostic accuracy or patient-oriented outcomes, there's really very little role for BNP at present. But my hope is that in the future, with further RCTs that overcome some of the methodological challenges we've been talking about, that BNP could be used in combination with POCUS uh, to help me with this difficult diagnosis. I'll admit that before this journal jam, I was ordering the occasional BNP for the inpatient services benefit, but I think now I'll stop doing that as well. Yeah. When assessing the
2: utility of any diagnostic test, it's important to ask not how it functions in a vacuum, but what does it add to my unstructured clinical judgment? In the case of BNP, The answer is very little. It's essentially a test with mediocre test characteristics at best, and that's when the studies use a questionable gold standard and a retrospective cutoff to identify optimal diagnostic performance. But when you examine its performance in patients that present a diagnostic conundrum, the test characteristics are unusable. More importantly, we have a better test. With the ubiquitous use of bedside ultrasound, we now have a test that can differentiate pulmonary edema from other causes of dyspnea with almost perfect diagnostic accuracy. At best, BNP informs us what we already know, and at worst, it's misleading.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Rory. I agree with everything you say. Uh, To date, BNP has not been available in any emergency department where I've worked. And after reviewing this literature, I think that's probably a good thing. You know, there's a lot of issues with trying to determine the exact sensitivity and specificity here, but I'm not sure that that matters. What I care about is a diagnostic test that will help my patients. And BNP is one of these rare situations where I actually have RCT data to guide me on a diagnostic test. It's great. And the results are pretty clear. It doesn't seem to improve patient oriented outcomes. Now, it's not impossible at some point, somebody might come up with a rule or select group of patients in whom BNP might actually work sort of like combining, you know, an age adjusted D-dimer with an intermediate wells rather than just doing a D-dimer on and on everybody. So, you know, future research may be reasonable, but I don't think that BNP should be used clinically in emergency departments at this time.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much, Rory and Justin, your critical appraisal skills continue to blow my mind. If any EM Cases listeners out there have any ideas for future Journal Jam podcasts, please email us at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. And until next time, guys, let's keep on jamming on the Journal Jam.
1: Thanks for having us, Anton. Thanks. Thanks.